Hello, hello everyone. My name is Katie Trotta and I'm here with my co-host Joshua Calderon. And welcome to Health Formation, a podcast where we give you health and wellness information and news to use. So, Josh, welcome. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good day. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. Um, how's everything going? How's your summer? Enjoying it. Just enjoying my uh, last bit of time off before med school. So yes, that's what you should be doing. Yeah, soaking up those days off. Everyone, everyone tells me that. So I'm how's your to vacation? Make of it. Oh, beach vacation was awesome. We spent five days out there and just had a great time. Got a little windy. Got some weather, but it was it was a good time all around. What beach did you guys go to? So we were at, in the southern part of the Outer Banks at Portsmouth Island. So it's kind okay. of remote. You got to take a four-wheel drive vehicle to get out there. So it was, uh, there was really no one out there. Awesome. <laughs> Aside from a few fishermen. So we had it to ourselves. You and the pup and the girlfriend? Yep, yep. How'd the pup the do? The whole crew. Oh, she was great. She uh, didn't very much like the waves, but um, she had a good time otherwise. Great. Love vacations with the doggie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Definitely. <laughs> So I'm very excited for our guest today. Yes, me too. We have Dr. Nicholas Pennings, the world-renowned, and our boss and the medical director of the health center here. So welcome, Dr. Pennings. Thank you for having me, Dr. Trotta. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for being our first guest. Um, how are you today? I'm doing great. Having a great morning? Yes. Um, thanks for carving out some time to chat with us today and be on our podcast. Um, so before we start and before we get to chatting about today's topic of intermittent fasting, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and how you landed here at Campbell? So I'm a family physician, board certified in family medicine and practiced family medicine for 22 years and then decided that I wanted to go into teaching. So one of the things that was always an important part of my practice in family medicine was health and wellness and helping people get healthy. And one of the challenges that I saw in my practice that were pe people were getting heavier and heavier and the consequences, the health consequences of obesity were mounting as I saw my patients getting heavier. So I became particularly interested in obesity medicine. Uh, I studied much about obesity medicine, became board certified in obesity medicine. And that's a big part of my practice today. One of the other things that I wanted to do was to teach medical students about health and wellness, and particularly about obesity. So I started here at Campbell um, almost six years now, and uh, it's been a great privilege to be able to teach medical students uh, about health and wellness, and particularly about obesity. So in your teaching journey, have you found that medical schools generally teach students about obesity? Um, is that something that's part of the curriculum for medical school? So almost every medical school in the country has zero curriculum on obesity. You know, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurses, pharmacists are not being taught about obesity. It's not part of their curriculum. And so that is a particular passion of mine to be able to include that as part of the medical education uh, for students, for residents, for practicing providers to be able to learn about how to treat this disease of obesity. It is now considered a disease. It's associated with over 236 health conditions that uh, are related to obesity. I think that that's awesome. That's great that you guys have been able to do that in the medical program. I know the PA program has also integrated some nutrition 
obesity medicine and pharmacy, we have, thanks to Beth Mills, have added in a lecture about um, the weight loss medication. So I think we've had a nice campus-wide interprofessional push to get that taught. So that's great. That is awesome. Um, so today we are going to talk a little bit about intermittent fasting. Um, but I think one of the big concepts behind intermittent fasting and one of the really important things that I would like everyone to have a good basis on before we talk about intermittent fasting is insulin resistance. So can you talk to us about what insulin resistance is um, and how that affects patients and also their weight? Well, insulin resistance is the primary cause of type 2 diabetes. And actually, that process of insulin resistance developing begins roughly 10 to 15 years before people are even diagnosed with diabetes. So it is the, the, the trigger that begins the path towards diabetes, and it is a very important part of the health consequences of diabetes. So when we eat, our body turns a lot of our calories into sugar. And once it turns it into sugar, that sugar goes into our bloodstream as glucose, and our body doesn't like to have high levels of sugar uh, in the bloodstream. So the body needs to get it out of the bloodstream, and insulin is the, the hormone that takes that sugar out of the bloodstream and puts it into the tissues of the body. It puts it into the liver, it puts it into the muscle, it puts it into the fat tissue, and allows the body to, to store that. When we have insulin resistance, the insulin doesn't work as well. It can't get that sugar out of the bloodstream and into those key parts of the body. And as a result, your blood sugar level starts to go up. Now, your liver can compensate a bit and take some of that excess sugar out, but then it turns it into fat, which is unhealthy for your body. And fat, in, fat builds up in the liver and around the heart and around the waist. Uh, and those are the things that lead to diseases like diabetes and heart disease and the consequences of uh, insulin resistance. And I read something recently that said that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is becoming the number one reason that people need liver transplants these days. So that fat around the liver has those added consequences for liver health as well. Right, very serious consequence with cirrhosis of the liver, needing liver transplants, liver cancer, all associated with fatty liver. And this is a very common problem and most people don't even know they have it because it's rather hard to detect. And I think when most people think about cirrhosis and liver disease, they think about alcoholics or people that are drinking heavily, but really that's not the main cause of liver disease today. So that's an interesting thing that people should know. So how does insulin resistance dif differ from insulin sensitivity? Obviously it's the opposite. What, what's important about insulin sensitivity? So insulin sensitivity is, is telling us how well our tissues are responding to insulin. So we want to, our, our muscle and our liver and our uh, fat tissue to be very sensitive to insulin. And so insulin sensitivity is the, is the opposite of insulin resistance. So as insulin resistance goes up, insulin sensitivity goes down. Awesome. So thank you for that review on insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. Um, I think that one of the concepts behind intermittent fasting is to hopefully improve your insulin sensitivity, raise that level up. So we're going to talk about that a little bit when we talk about our article. 
So Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experiences with intermittent fasting? Sure. So I've actually tried intermittent fasting a few times in the past and um, I've, you know, I've had it really be effective depending on what my goals were. Um, when I tried it about a year ago, it was actually really awesome. I, I really enjoyed it because, you know, it simplified my schedule. I didn't have to wake up and worry about cooking breakfast. And I was doing a 16 and 8 um, method where I would eat, my eating window would be 8 hours and I would fast for the other 16 hours in the day. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I found my body composition changed a little bit. You know, I, I appeared to be leaner, although I wasn't really measuring, um, measuring my fat loss and such. But it worked really well then. But my goals were a bit different now. So as of late, when I tried this uh, about a week, week and a half ago, I found that I wasn't able to get my calorie needs um, really met during fasting or while using intermittent fasting. And um, I think that's mainly because I've just started a marathon training plan and I'm, I'm running the Marine Corps marathon in October. And it's just really hard for me to eat 3,000, 3,500 calories in an eight hour window. And um, yeah, so I ended up actually not doing that anymore. All right. Well, training for that marathon, you got to eat all day? Yes, pretty much. <laughs> Sometimes that's difficult. <laughs> blessing and a curse, I guess. A blessing and a curse of being tall and thin and fit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you're exerting yourself like that, you need calories. Like yes. The, the, our, our problem is we don't typically exert ourselves right. like that. We're sedentary much of the time. We don't need a lot of calories during that time. And that's where intermittent fasting can be effective. But when you are engaging in high levels of activity, your body needs calories to function properly. Yes. Um, I tried intermittent fasting as well. I also did the 16 and 8 method of fasting for 16, eating for 8. And I generally don't eat breakfast just because I'm not hungry in the morning. And I'm a proponent of don't eat when you're not hungry. So I normally would start to get hungry around 10.30. When I was at work, I would have a little snack, usually fruit, before lunch. Um, so I eliminated that during my intermittent fasting, started eating at 12, stopped eating at 8. And it really helped me because I work out later in the day, and I would get home from my workout, and I would eat dinner. And then after I would eat dinner, I'd have a snack. And then after I would have a snack, I'd probably have a piece of chocolate. So I eliminated the after-dinner snack and chocolate because it would be past 8 o'clock by the time I got to that period. So that helped me. Um, also helped me to just have those health, that healthier routine. I probably won't continue doing intermittent fasting just because, kind of like Josh said, my work day and I'm moving and I, I have to eat when I have the time to eat. So it doesn't really work for my day-to-day every day. Um, but I did like it when I was doing it for our little test. Have you ever tried it? Dr. Yes, I, I'll have periods of time where I don't eat, particularly if I'm working late. Uh, so for me, I'm a breakfast eater, mm. so I like to eat in the morning. And so it is, for me, it's easier to not eat at night uh, than it is uh, to not eat during the day. Does Carol cook you breakfast? No, I make my own breakfast. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say, have that pre- prepared breakfast, of course you have to eat it. Um, All right, let's transition to talking about our article. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Our article is called 
Effects of intermittent versus continuous energy intake on insulin sensitivity and metabolic risk in women with overweight. So this was an article that was published this year in the Obesity Journal. I will post a copy or link to the article in our Facebook page. Can you post a link to the article in our show notes? Yes, I can create some show notes and do we we'll have do show that. Notes? We don't. <laughs> apparently, we do not have show notes, but we uh, will definitely get on that and we'll get you. Um, if Dr. Pennings is willing, we'll post some information on him as well. That'd be um, great. Just so you guys know a little bit more about him, if you're interested. I think if we have show notes, we'll be really official. Yeah. So I we think need so. show notes. We'll do that. I'll get on it. <laughs> I was really excited to say. We'll post the link to our article in our show notes. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Pennings, tell us a little bit about your familiarity with this article. You, how did you come across it? So, it is intermittent fasting is a very interesting topic. It's a very popular topic. A lot of people are are uh, exploring intermittent fasting as a tool. Uh, certain authors are publishing on on intermittent fasting. I think one of the interesting things about intermittent fasting is we don't really have a definition for it yet. It's right? It's really very variable. Uh, so it can be just some period of time where you're not eating. That could be 8, 16 hours. It could be uh, a whole day. It could be several days. It could be weeks that you're, that you're not eating. So there's some extreme forms of intermittent fasting that are out there. Sounds horrible. So, <laughs> yes, it, and, well, truthfully, once you get about three days into fasting, you're not hungry. Um, that is uh, one of the, the kind of the interesting uh, outcomes of a dietary shift. When, when, and what happens in intermittent fasting is this is where we really give the pancreas a rest, right? Our body, the pancreas is the organ that makes insulin. And when we're not eating, we're not producing insulin. We don't need to produce much insulin. And so we give the pancreas uh, a rest. Um, and what happens is we turn to burning fat for our source of energy. And when we're burning fat for, for energy, that tends to decrease our hunger. The, the, our body makes ketones. Uh, it makes something called free fatty acids. Both of those are thought to reduce our appetite some. And so that takes hunger away. Um, and, I, and interestingly, energy levels often go up after you're fasting for several days as well. Very often, our energy levels tend to fluctuate. We may feel more energy one part of the day, feel tired another part of the day. And a lot of that's fluctuations in sugar. And when we're intermittent fasting, our sugar stays very steady. Uh, it does not fluctuate as much. And so our energy levels tend to stay very steady. That's so great. Th so this article was of interest to me because it was a very structured uh, study. So... It was very specific, very controlled. It was a small group of individuals of 88 women involved. They had an average BMI of about 32.3, which would be in the category of what we call class 1 obesity. Uh, BMI over 30 is what we consider uh, obese. The, uh, and the women were 50 plus years old, but it was, they were on a very structured kind of plan, and that's what inter uh, was of particular interest to me. So we have a group of women, 50 years of age or older, and they were generally obese, not extremely obese, but in the class one obesity category, 88 women. So it's a decent patient population. 
Um, so how did we divide up those women into the four study groups for this study? I think this could be a little confusing when you're first looking at the different groups that they have so in the study. It is complicated because they have four groups. But basically, you split the groups into a group that was doing intermittent fasting and a group that was doing what they call daily calorie restriction. So one group uh, spent three days out of the week where they would eat breakfast and then would not eat anything the rest of the day. And they did that every other day for three days a week. So that was our intermittent fasting groups. That was the intermittent fasting group. The daily calorie restriction had a set number of calories every day and the same number of calories each day while they were doing the study. And then we had a control group. So the so the 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 those two groups were further divided into a group that restricted calories by seventy percent. So what they did was they looked at how many calories do does this person require over the course of the week? And they would do that calculation based on their age, height, weight, gender, um, and they would say how many calories do they need over the course of the week? And so. Half of them got 70% of those calories over the course of the week, and the other half got 100%. And so those that got 70%, half did fasting, half did daily calorie restriction. And then the, uh, the 100% group, half did intermittent fasting, and half did uh, daily calorie restriction at 100% of their calorie needs. And that was really considered the control group. Okay, so we had four groups. Half of them are doing intermittent fasting. Half of them are doing daily calorie restriction. And then we're dividing those groups in half again. Mm -hmm. And half are going to re restrict their calories to 70% of their weekly calorie needs. And then the other half are going to do 100% of their weekly calorie needs. Right. So I think let's talk about the 70% group for a moment. I think when you're thinking about your daily calorie restriction to 70% of your calorie needs. That's easy for someone to understand. If you need 2,000 calories a day, you'll restrict 600 calories and only eat 1,400. Math moment. <laughs> um, so tell us how that looked for the intermittent fasting group that restricted by 70% or to 70%. And, and another way of thinking of that is say, take your plate and cut it by a third. Take a third yes. of the food off your plate. That's, That's roughly, really practical. roughly a way of looking at, uh, at that group. So, um, so what would happen then is uh, if you're the, the intermittent fasting group would have to get more calories on the days that they were eating than the daily calorie restricted group because they'd have to lump all those calories that they, were, that they measured over the course of the week into basically four days. Right. So they would get higher amounts to eat. So to help our listeners a little bit, I was looking at the supplemental data for the study. And in our intermittent fasting group, so for the 70 group on the eating days, they got about 2,300 calories. And the intermittent fasting 100 group on the eating days, they had 3,000 calories that they had to eat. So how do you think that influenced the outcomes of the study? So... What you're looking at is they have to consume more calories on their on the days off. Right. And so I, I think what, what is interesting is what was the effect of all this uh, in the study. And if you look at who uh, benefited the most, the, the, the intermittent fasting uh, group 
that consumed 70% of their calories uh, lost the most weight. They right. had the most benefit uh, right. from it. Um, and so, whereas the daily calorie restriction at 100% uh, uh, did not have any weight change. So that they had, had done the best. So the intermittent fasting with reduced calories seemed to do the best. Right. I think what was interesting was was actually in the, in the group that showed that did intermittent fasting at 100% of the weekly calorie amount, they had to consume a lot more calories right. in, in to, to compensate for that. And that had two effects. One, it, it decreased the, the weight loss, um, but they did tend to eat less on those days. They didn't eat all their calories. Right. They were not consuming the full 100%. Right. Uh, so they actually it did end up losing some weight compared to the daily calorie restriction group. So there was some benefit that was uh, seen by that intermittent fasting in terms of weight loss, but also their fasting insulin levels were higher uh, when on the days that they ate. In other words, the because they had to consume so many calories on the days that they were eating, it actually had an unhealthy metabolic effect because yes. uh, a high insulin level is a sign of insulin resistance. So that would tell me that when you're trying to make up your calories on the days off, on the days that you're eating, if you're eating too much, then that has an unhealthy effect on your body. Right. And that was something that we had talked about earlier, Josh, about how the authors had said that the intermittent fasting 100 group actually had more markers at the end for type 2 diabetes than the other group. Yeah, I found that interesting. I mean, because you just see in social media and all the other articles about intermittent fasting, how, you know, it's healthier than any other method, but that's only in certain circumstances, it seems right. like. You still have to be eating healthy in the right number of calories. Yes. Uh, and I think that that points to anytime you're consuming more calories than your body's able to handle, that it's going to have an unhealthy Right, and that's what we, what we saw here. Uh, our body can only handle so many calories in a day, and if, when we give it more than it can handle in that day, then it's going to have unhealthy consequences. So, how do we translate this for the average person? If they want to try intermittent fasting, what advice would we give to them? What do you tell your patients that want to try intermittent fasting? So, when I take a dietary history on people, uh, I do often hear people that know, can go periods of time without eating, that they don't want to eat in the morning, or they don't, there are certain, uh, uh, they find it easier not to eat. And then when they, once they start to eat, then they, then they tend to consume more. So I think intermittent fasting can be very useful for people who feel fine not eating for periods of time. That that's kind of how your body works and everybody's individual. So it's not for everybody, but I think it is beneficial to those who can, can go for periods of time without eating. I think the, the, the key component to this, though, is once you're out of that fasting period, it's not eat whatever you want. Right. right? Not eat as much food as you want. Not eat, not eat unhealthy food. Not eat all the burgers and fries that you want just because you fasted for a period of time. You still have to make healthy choices. Still have to make healthy choices. And you still have to be careful about your portions uh, and not consuming in excess. Uh, and so for people who, once they get hungry, they have a really hard time stop, stopping eating, it may not be the best 
solution for them. It may not be the best approach for them because there's a tendency to overcompensate and overconsume calories. And then, as we saw in the intermittent fasting at 100% of weekly calorie consumption, it has unhealthy consequences. Could I'm wondering if if uh, someone were to track their caloric intake, you know, using my fitness pal or something like that, could could that help people stay on track during their periods of eating? Um, monitoring your calories is always beneficial, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But once you're measuring and you realize how many calories are in that mocha latte that you're you're consuming a lot, <laughs> then suddenly it doesn't become so appealing, right? right? Um, uh, one of the other uh, uh, things behind my fitness pals, you can also measure your physical activity, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can see how many calories you're burning. And I think one of the one of the good things to do is if you are walking or exercising and you're counting your calories burned, look how easy it is to eat those calories that you just exercised. Uh, And that is another tool. But always measuring your calories and looking at your calories, uh, it gives you insight as to how high the calorie content of some foods are that we're eating without thinking about it. I saw something the other day that I thought was really interesting. The calorie content of 10 walnuts is about 110 calories. And that's equal to the calorie content of about 100 green beans. So would you rather eat 10 walnuts or 100 green beans for the same amount of calories? So you got to think about your your calorie density, your nutrient density as well. And that really helps you to make healthier choices. And that's one of the great things about vegetables is vegetables fill you up with fewer calories. So one of the things I think that's important to discuss is what participants were actually able to eat during their fasting day. So when they were fasting, they were only allotted breakfast, and it was about one-third of their daily allotted calories. They divided that up between 35% fat, 15% protein, 50% carbs. That was their one hour that they were allowed to eat breakfast. And then the rest of the day, they were not allowed to eat anything. But the authors of the study did allow them to have diet drinks, black coffee. What else, Josh? Uh, They also said they could have a very low energy broth uh, for lunch or dinner. So that's kind of interesting. So... What do you think about the breakdown of their breakfast and then also the other foods that they're allowed to eat during their fasting period? So they have a good amount of protein, 15% uh, uh, protein, 35% fat. Those those are usually uh, a ratio that can help promote satiety, help promote, promote a certain amount of fullness. Protein tends to make us feel full. Uh, fat also can make us feel more full than carbohydrates do. So uh, that type of a meal is more sustaining uh, than, say, a high-carbohydrate meal. So right. when you're having, you know, a Danish or a donut or no. something like that, very yeah. high in carbohydrate tends not to be filling and satisfying, and you'll, you'll have a, a drop in your blood sugar. It'll make you feel tired, and that will make, it'll make you feel hungry again as well. So, so that, that's a, a good choice. The, the broth is usually used to help increase your salt intake because when you're going into fasting, oh. your body is burning, going to be burning um, 
fat, it's shifting to a fat burn. And when you do that, your body tends to get rid of a lot of salt. And that's why people often pee a lot more while they're doing that. Uh, but they're getting rid of salt in their body. Sometimes that causes you to have a headache. Okay. And the soup broth offsets that. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Okay. I just thought it was weird that they were allowed to have diet soft drinks. We were trying to promote them to be healthier. We're kind of giving them an unhealthy soda. But that's just me. <laughs> and, you know, my feeling on diet soda is that it's better than regular soda. But the best thing to drink is water. So right. I would encourage people not to drink it. But if that's something they really feel they need to have, I'm also not vehemently opposed to it. Right. So I know you said that the 35% fat was kind of a good percentage to promote satiety for patients in the study. But I did think it was a little bit interesting. A lot of the research that I've read has showed that for insulin resistance and improving insulin sensitivity, um, we need lower fat and especially saturated fat because the saturated fat can increase insulin resistance. And so I just thought that the 35% was a little bit high uh, of a goal. And what I would clarify that is our, our body does not need excess fat. Right. Right. Our body needs fat. Fat is an essential part of our diet. It's a healthy part of our diet. Uh, but there are less fats that are less healthy than others. But when we consume excess fat, particularly in combination with carbohydrates, so a classic example would be a French fry. It's all fat and starch, right? And it's an excess amount of fat and typically an unhealthy fat. So our body needs fat and 35, it's not the 35% that concerns me. I, mean, it, I wouldn't be concerned about that because the amount of calories was very small. Sure. So if if they were consuming the three thousand calories and and of that a lot of that was fat, then I would be concerned because once our body can handle a certain amount of fat, just like it can handle a certain amount of glucose, and once we exceed that, it starts to have unhealthy effects on our body. And there are so many different kinds of fats that we do need to know, you know, exactly what type of fats and what the people were eating to have, to have a good analysis as well. Saturated, if they're eating all saturated fats, if they're only eating butter, obviously that's going to be worse than if they're having an avocado. Right. So some fats are definitely healthier than others, like avocado and olive oil. And the fat in the walnuts is a healthy right. fat. Exactly. So my last question for translating this to our patients, there were no men in this study. So do you think that that limits the results of this study just to women? Or how can we translate this for our male patients who are coming into clinic or our male listeners who might be interested in intermittent fasting um, since they were not included in this particular study? So there are definitely limitations of the study. It's a small group. Uh, it was exclusively women. Uh, there were women over 50, so you have a select age population uh, involved in this in this study, uh, and they had a certain uh, BMI range of uh, obesity. They were in the class one obesity range. So how does that apply to everybody? We don't really know, right? right? So it needs it certainly needs further study. I think the the concept of excess calories uh, in, in a narrow window of time having unhealthy effects uh, would be something that would apply to most anybody. I think that that is just generally how our, our human 
body responds to an excess uh, amount of food. And that there are benefits from going for periods of time without eating. Those benefits are likely to vary individually. May vary by gender, may vary by age, may vary by race. So there's, there's, this is something that work may work for a select group of people. But like all dietary intervention, there's no single solution for everybody. And so I would say try it, monitor the health effects. Uh, if you have health issues, you should work with your healthcare provider to make sure that you uh, are not putting your body at risk. If you have high blood pressure, if you have diabetes, it's very important that you monitor those things because you can have significant drops in blood pressure or, or blood sugar. So those things need to be done in concert with a health professional. Yep. Ask your pharmacist. Yes. <laughs> so there, I think those are uh, important limitations to understand. But some components, I think the concept of intermittent fasting is an interesting one. I think it works for select uh, people. And we need to do more studies to understand uh, it better and understand who it's good for and maybe who it's not. Now, for men specifically, you know, I've seen, especially on fitness blogs and such, that uh, there are claims that intermittent fasting or fasting in general can increase growth hormone or maybe even testosterone levels in men. Um, In your experience, have you seen any research in that area? I think the data is very limited on okay. that, and and you're you're talking about something that is like growth hormone in particular is released in a what we call a pulsatile fashion. It's not like a, our body releases it steadily all day, hmm. um, and so it's kind of hard to measure those things and measure the impact of those things. And so sometimes things that are done on a very limited basis may be done in in rats and and then translated into human effects uh, you have to look at with, uh, with skepticism. Yeah, again, so it sounds like um, these these fitness bloggers and such may be overselling this as a tool for muscle gain and fat loss um, when the research really isn't right. there yet. Because our body breaks down muscle all day, and if you're not taking in protein, you may then create uh, muscle loss rather than muscle gain. So uh, I don't think there's any clear data on what the impact and that's to me one of the biggest questions around intermittent fasting is what is what is its effect on what we call fat-free mass what is its effect on our muscle and our uh, bone uh, tissue well thank you so much dr pennings for being our first guest on our health formation podcast i enjoyed having him oh yeah yeah It it was a great conversation a lot of great insights so for your final wrap-up, give us your one health and wellness tip that you would like our listeners to take away. The one thing that you tell your, your patients or the people that you talk to that you think can promote healthy living. So one of the favorite things I like to talk about is that we should not look at food as good or bad because there's so much dual meaning around that. We should look at food as either being healthy or unhealthy. Right? Food will either make our health better or make our health worse. So when we look at a chocolate chip cookie, is that good? Is it bad? Well, it tastes good, but it's bad for you, right? And so there's a dual meaning there. But if we look at whether it's healthy or unhealthy, it's always unhealthy. And so if we can start making our food choices around health, 
rather than what we usually make them around, which is taste, cost, and convenience, then it is easier to make better food choices, to make healthier food choices. Awesome. That's great. A great tip. Well, thank you so much. Um, and if, hopefully you can come back and chat with us again for a future episode. If you find another article you think is interesting, let us know. Will do. We'll, we'll come back and have another chat. Oh, yeah. Well, Josh, we're wrapping up our first official episode. I know. It's it's a momentous period. It feels in, exciting. <laughs> in the health promotion journey. So, I love it. I, yeah, I know. It's, it's crazy, but we're here. If you've listened this far into our first episode, thank you. Yes, thank you very much <laughs> for holding on. We appreciate you immensely. And we hope that you will like us on Facebook under the title of Health Formation. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, definitely like us on Facebook, like Katie said. Uh, feel free to subscribe to this podcast and share it with someone if, uh, if you found it helpful or interesting. And look forward to uh, getting you guys some more information here in the future. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.